This is the Leader Technique Podcast. I'm Dr. Jody John, a researcher with experience and background in high-tempo, hazardous operations like wildland firefighting and Antarctic science logistics. I've spent my research career looking into ways that people who are not alpha males navigate leadership, safety, and inclusion in male-dominated work. And I think it's all about technique. Join me in talking about leadership practices, teamwork design, and safety culture. I throw in self-coaching techniques along the way too, because a solid self-coaching practice will get you where you want to go that much faster, especially as you lead. Get podcast notes to your inbox at www.leadertechnique.com. That's leadertechnique, all one word, dot com. Find me on LinkedIn at Jody John, that's J-O-D-Y-J-A-H-N, and I'm on Instagram at leader.technique. Thanks for joining me. This is Leader Technique, episode one. This episode is about voice, why voicing concerns, ideas, or dissent is such a freaking minefield. We're going to talk about how to navigate your way through tough conversations that come up, especially when safety is involved. I'll be breaking down the advice, if you see something, say something, and why it's not a great fit for the wildland fire context. Then I'll walk through some simple pointers to help you set your crew routines up in a way that allows your folks to develop voicing as a skill. You've probably heard the advice, if you see something, say something. I recently came across a New York Times article. It was an obituary for the guy who coined that phrase. He was a Madison Avenue marketing guy. If you see something, say something came out of a post 9-11 public awareness campaign. The obituary talked about how there were a few different options the creative team considered, like if you see a suspicious package, report it to police, and some other clunky versions of the message. In the end, if you see something, say something was the right slogan to get Manhattanites more aware of what was going on around them, and it gave them a call to action to say something if anything seemed off. It's a catchy piece of advice, and it worked really well when speaking to 10 million or however many there are unconnected New Yorkers. When applied to the firefighting context, which it often is, it can ring pretty hollow, though, don't you think? If you see something, say something. It just isn't that simple. There are so many reasons why you wouldn't say anything if you saw something. Maybe you saw something, but other people around you have more experience, and they don't seem concerned, and they're not saying anything, so maybe you'll just keep your mouth shut. Because what if you said something and then everything turned out fine? Maybe you'd look like you're too cautious or like you don't belong there, like you can't hang. You know what I'm talking about? Voicing isn't just seeing something and saying something. Inside your mind, it can play out more like a four-dimensional chess game of social and status calculations. In that moment, your brain is comparing you to everyone around you by running instantaneous simulations that play out a wide selection of probable event sequences and outcomes. And you have to choose a way forward that keeps you physically safe from the hazard and socially safe in your group. I mean, you're thinking about the person who's out to get you and how they'll latch on to whatever you say so they can rub it in your face and humiliate you in front of everyone later. And you're also thinking about the person who always has your back and how you don't want to make them look like a fool for supporting you. All of these images play out in a split second and they can shape what it is you end up saying, if anything at all. And here's why voice is not just a decision in the moment to say something. 
if you see something, it's because the options you're choosing from when it comes to voicing are not only about what is or is not hazardous, the decision is also about how the act of voice will impact your social standing in the group. It's the social consequences of voicing that raise the stakes for you, maybe even more than the actual physical hazards in front of you. It depends on the situation, of course, but when you deal with hazards all the time, you can get used to being around them. They can get normalized. So a hazard needs to to be outrageously dangerous for it to register as an obvious threat worth saying something about. It needs to rise to that level. And sometimes the potential threat isn't obvious until after it's done a bunch of damage, so hindsight bias can kick in too. The reason why if you see something say something is a poor fit for wildland firefighting is that it was a 9-11 slogan aimed at eliminating hazards, like suspicious packages left in subway stations. The goal was to completely get rid of them. But your job isn't about avoiding or eliminating hazards, it's actually about engaging them as safely as you can on a regular basis. In fact, your identity as a professional is tied up in noticing hazards and working with them or around them. So much of your reputation can become tied up in knowing the difference between a doable hazard and a no-go kind of hazard. So saying something, voicing concern or dissent, can feel like a violation of your professional identity if it's coming off like you're not willing to engage. It's usually your crew identity that shapes your actions most strongly because those are the people you directly hold yourself accountable to. We won't go into crew identity in this episode, but it is one of my main research areas, so I do have a ton to say about this and we will get to it in later episodes. Don't you worry. Back to voice in general, though, voicing is not just a discretionary decision to say something. Instead, it's a performance of professional identity. It's an act you do with your voice and your body in the context of other people and within a crew culture that has specific ways of defining what counts as hazardous and who has the standing to make the call or get heard when they say something. It's a freaking complicated minefield. So let's dive into the mess. Every time you say anything in fire, you do so within a culture that has a bunch of complicated undercurrents that inform you about what the people around you deem appropriate or out of place. It can take a while to really wrap your arms around fire culture, but there are several common cultural things you'll want to articulate as soon as you can so you can best navigate it. It can help to imagine how people perform fire, like how actors perform a role. Imagine with me a theater stage, like a Broadway theater with seats for the audience and the curtain on either side of the stage. Now the lights come on and you see a whole scene up on that stage. Your crew standing around, they're the characters, and you're on the stage too, wanting to say something but deciding not to. What's going on on that stage, in that scene, between and among those characters? What are people thinking? What's holding your character back from saying something? How are people in that scene evaluating each other? What are they really hoping they don't mess up? What are they desperate to get right? If you can answer those questions, you've got a good idea of what the social undercurrents are in that group's culture. In general, knowing these undercurrents can help you tailor how you engage in voice, and more generally, how you communicate with others. If you can speak to the things that your fellow crew members value, then you have a better chance of being heard. 
That's just general communication advice, though, calm 101 kind of stuff. If you really want to master voicing as a skill, then you'll want to think about how to navigate the common situations when it comes up. So now I'm going to walk you through some things to consider as either you develop voicing as a skill or as you as a supervisor set up your crew routines so your folks can develop voicing as a skill. The first thing to think about is the voicing script. After action reviews or other types of briefings or debriefings provide really good opportunities for people to practice voicing as a skill because these interactions usually follow a specific pattern and it doesn't take long to figure out where and how you might chime in. From a training or supervisory perspective, if you're running a crew, it can be helpful to have regular briefings or debriefings because the regularity of those conversations and the routine structure of them sets expectations for how to perform the voicing script. By script, I mean your people get to know the rhythm of that conversation, when to chime in, what kinds of things to raise, how to deliver the question or concern in a way that fits the vibe of the group, um, and how to speak in a way that allows them to be heard. If you've worked on more than one crew, notice how this conversation feels a little different in the different crews you've been on. Those differences are important and they tell you a lot about that crew's values and culture, which is interesting to notice as you start thinking about maybe running your own crew in the future or if you already are. From the crew member or learner perspective, practicing voice in a highly scripted interaction like an after action review or routine predictable interaction like a briefing or debriefing gives you somewhat low stakes opportunities to step out of your comfort zone and start contributing, even if you're still pretty new to things. Talking about briefings and debriefings probably sounds kind of boring, but what I found in the teamwork literature and through doing a bunch of my own research is that these routine interactions really are the keystone or linchpin of a crew's culture. Routines create continuity, clarify expectations, and give people specific forums for dealing with whatever matters might come up in a crew. You might be desensitized to the idea of an AAR because you do so many of them, but don't underestimate the power of a routine crew conversation to carry the intended culture you want on your crew. I've got a ton to say about that particular point, just not in this episode. The second element of voice that you want to take into account is your status positioning relative to the person or people you're communicating with. Even when you're in a group, you end up interacting with just one person at a time. So it's useful to understand how that status positioning is shifting depending on who you're talking to and what the context is. What you want to pay attention to is what the complementary relationship is that you're in with that person. By complementary relationship, that's complementary spelled with an E, not an I. I'm referring to relationships in which the two roles are defined in relation to each other. Think supervisor versus subordinates, teacher versus student, doctor versus patient, veteran crew member versus newcomer, higher status person versus lower status person. For example, a supervisor and a subordinate are complementary because each role is defined in relation to the other one and doesn't exist without it. A supervisor doesn't exist without subordinates to boss around and without a supervisor what's a subordinate working under or what are they sub in relation to. How the two roles interact with each other is also scripted in a basic sense. The supervisor expects the subordinate to take orders and the subordinate accepts this ex expectation because they understand that they work for the supervisor. 
The supervisor versus subordinate complementary relationship is an example of a formal status difference, but sometimes the complementarity can be a gray area, like when it's a higher status versus lower status thing. Uh, status in air quotes can be tied to anything. In fire, I'm thinking of status being tied to demographics, athletic ability, how funny someone is, chainsaw qualifications, years of experience, amount of local knowledge, what have you. Status positioning is relative, which means that it's always changing depending on who you're talking to. So it's helpful to have some tools in your back pocket for when you're in the lower status position and you need to move on to equal footing with somebody, communicatively speaking. If you're in that one down position or even on equal footing, then you'll need to work some conversational magic to move up to equal footing or get into that one up position. I'll be going into a lot more detail on how to do this in the next episode, but for now, I want you to start getting used to noticing that complementarity and how it always shifts and what it's based on, and then also to get used to taking inventory of the resources available to you. Resources that can help you with this communicative status move include anything that has equal power over both of you. Think Lookout's Communication Escape Route Safety Zones, LCES, Downhill Line Construction Checklist, Risk Management Checklist, Weather Forecasts, Incident Action Plan, Leader's Intent, a best practice you both adhere to, a policy you're both compelled to follow, and so forth. When you're both equally compelled to follow a given directive, that equal need is what puts you on more equal footing with each other. And this more equal footing is what opens up the conversation. For example, there are a couple conversational strategies you could use here. You could take a collaborative approach and bring up a resource as a way to work together to meet a shared objective. Or if you need a nuclear option, you can invoke a resource as a kind of trump card to get them to pay attention to the situation. Like I said, a lot more on the nuts and bolts of this in episode two. But for now, just start noticing how your complementarity shifts depending on who you're talking to. Are you in a one-up or a one-down position? Or are you on equal footing? Whichever it is, what is that complementarity based on in that moment? Is it based on the formal role, supervisor, subordinate? Is it informal, like they've just been on the crew longer, so they have higher status? Is it status in terms of the popularity contest? Um, Are they just really well liked on the crew, so they have higher status? Maybe they fit the mold of wildland firefighter, in air quotes, better than you do, so they have higher status. Um, Is the complementarity based on majority minority biases, where there's gender or race or ethnicity playing a role? Next, notice the resources that have equal power over both of you and pay attention to how powerful those resources are locally on your crew. Are you guys big on LCES or risk management checklist, etc.? Notice those and be ready to invoke them if you need them. So there you have it. Three simple things to consider when fostering voicing within your crew culture. The first is to use your routine communicative interactions to your crew's advantage. These briefings, debriefings, after action reviews, and so on are valuable opportunities to practice voicing as a skill. It's up to the supervisor to set the expectations that people participate in them and to do so in a way that's welcoming of multiple viewpoints. From a crew member perspective, notice the regularity of how these conversations unfold, the norms of what people bring up, and start planning how you're going to jump in. Look around you throughout the day and find things you want to bring up to contribute to the conversation. The second tip is to start noticing the complementary relationships you find yourself in in interactions. 
You need to know what the nature of the relationship is in any given moment if you're going to successfully steer it in a direction you want it to go in. It's especially useful to notice when you're in a one-down position because that's when you'll need to work some conversational magic. And remember, a one-down position can be formal. They're the supervisor and you're the subordinate. Or it could be informal. They've been there longer than you, so they have higher status. Or it could be a popularity thing where maybe they just fit the ideal image of a wildland firefighter better than you do. Or it could be a majority-minority bias thing where uh, they're male and you're female, or they're white and you are BIPOC. Third, if you're in the one-down position, start taking inventory of the resources that you are both equally accountable to follow, because you can bring those up in conversation to get yourself on a more equal playing field with them. In the next episode, I'll pull all these ideas together and we'll walk through how that could play out. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you found this episode helpful. If you liked what you heard, feel free to pass it along to other folks you think might like it. You can follow along on Instagram at leader.technique and get on my mailing list to get emails and podcast notes at www.leadertechnique, all one word, dot com. That's leadertechnique.com. All right. Have a great week.